This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode contains references to the sexual assault and abuse of minors. We will list some support services at the end and on the Full Story page as well. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story. Grace Tame is a forceful voice in Australia's reckoning with child sexual abuse. When she was 15, she was groomed and then repeatedly sexually abused by her 58-year-old teacher, who was later convicted and served 18 months in jail. Publicly, he described his crimes as awesome and enviable. Publicly, I was silenced by law. Not anymore. Years later, Grace and other activists successfully campaigned to abolish laws that gag victims of sexual assault across the country. And then, in 2021, she was named Australian of the Year. All survivors of child sexual abuse, this is for us. As assault survivors took to the streets and demanded change, Grace spoke out. Evil thrives in silence. Behaviour unspoken, behaviour ignored, is behaviour endorsed. And refused to back down, even from the Prime Minister. After a year in the media spotlight, Grace has now published a memoir detailing her story in her own words. Today, a conversation with Grace Tame. It's Thursday, the 27th of October. Hi, Grace, how are you going? Hey, I'm all right, thanks, sorry. I'm just going to, I'm sitting on a couch and going to move things around so that it's not on a strange angle. No, thank you so much for making time. So, Grace, you were the first ever public child sexual abuse survivor to be named Australian of the Year. And over the past few years, the public has gotten to know you. I think a lot of people have noticed that you have a dark and quick sense of humour, that you're not afraid to call things out. You write that for some people, this contradicts how an abuse survivor is allowed to conduct themselves. What do you mean by that? One of the things that I'm determined to help break down is this myth that uh, victim survivors of, of child sexual abuse, especially, uh, you know, anything but just a human being like, like anybody else, uh, you know, that we're incapable of, of, of doing things because we've had this experience that, yes, is traumatic and, and affects you in lots of different ways. You know, these, these experiences, by virtue of their traumatic nature, will affect people differently However, it isn't something that defines us mm-hmm. and there's also no such thing as a perfect victim and manifestations of trauma are not things that should be used to incriminate a survivor. Where I see the media go wrong in their reporting is in raising elevating perpetrators of crimes such as sexual and domestic violence to their credentials. For example, it might be 
world-class piano player or elite private school teacher rapes a student child. And then the bulk of the story becomes about the survivor's behaviour. So survivors then are reduced to their behaviour and that is what is put on display and mm. they, are the, they are the ones that are skewered. They are the ones that are torn apart and examined to within an inch of their life. We shouldn't be chastising the victim survivors of crimes. It doesn't make any sense. I know so much has been written about you. You've spoken so much in the public over the past two years. Why was it important for you to write a book, to write your own memoir? Well, one of the things that I think is not well understood about the experience of disclosing a story to the media is that when you do share with a journalist... For example, if you do an episode of television, whether you're a survivor of child sexual abuse or any experience, you surrender control and autonomy again. And what will often happen is the process is inherently traumatic and it's part of the reason actually why survivors don't speak, you know, it shouldn't be the case that survivors either, they have limited options, you know, they either go to the police or they go to the media and it, it is often that these institutions that are supposedly designed to protect us as a society, the courts, the media, the authorities, they actually recreate the behaviour patterns, intentionally or otherwise, of perpetrators of abuse. They recreate the dynamics wherein they are the ones holding all the power while we are left not knowing what is coming next, you know, the right thing to do or say. They're the ones that ask the questions, which is inherently anxiety-inducing. They are often agents of bigger institutions that make you feel smaller that make you feel as though if you don't bend to their will and you do something wrong, that you will be chastised. And that is inherently intimidating. You write about in your book how this happened to you, that when the story broke in Tasmania, the front page of the local newspaper read, teacher admits to affair with student. Was that type of framing common? Did you hear those completely inappropriate framings of your story a lot at the time? Well, part of the reason for that was that the offence name in Tasmania at the time was maintaining a sexual relationship with a person under the age of 17. The wording, for example, of maintaining a sexual relationship feeds into these victim-blaming tropes. Now, in other states at the time, that exact same offence was the persistent sexual abuse of a child. Also part of the problem is that when I reported the abuse, I was still a minor, I was 16, and I was still in the mindset of somebody who was defensive of him. That's, you know, such as the experience of grooming, you know, when you're a child, relationships are life and death. And mm. I've talked, you know, a lot in my book 
about how eventually I was groomed into a state of infatuation with this person. I was telling myself and him, you know, that I must, I must love this man. This mm. must be why, you know, because it's much easier to convince yourself that that is the case as opposed to believe the reality that you are just an object for a person who doesn't care about you. When I confronted him eventually in his office before I reported him, I told him that I thought he was a monster and that I hated him for what he had done to me. And he just sat there and he looked at me and he sort of just went, he had a blank face. He had a blank face and he just looked at me and he sort of just went, well, if that's what you think of me. And that was, that was a really powerful moment for me because it said a lot of things. It just sort of said to me that he didn't, he didn't care about me throughout the entire time. There were, you know, 28 multimedia files of child abuse material on his home computer. And I remember, you know, the shock of, of, of being handed back items uh, by the police that they were assumed to be mine after the investigation you know, when I was still, like I said, I was still a minor. I was 16 when I reported. I was 15 when the physical abuse took place. And I was 14 when I met him. I was 14 throughout the year that he taught me at that high school in a class full of only eight students. And I remember standing there with this, this envelope that they'd given me and it just had blonde hair in it, locks of blonde hair in it. And I'm going, is that my hair? Is that my hair? You know, it's like, it's beyond comprehension even when it's there staring you in the face and that is part of it that's 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 you know we we think this stuff only exists in films and it was I didn't want to believe it no one wants to believe that the book does feel like a coming to terms with all of these things and it does sound like you've been coming to terms with this over the past decade Gradually, I mean, I was surprised to hear that you only learnt about the meaning of the term grooming in your early 20s. Can you tell me a bit about that? So much of this stuff, to the benefit of perpetrators, is shrouded in mystery. It's very complex and I think it became more public in the wake of the Royal Commission and the survivor advocates have been doing incredible work in this space and I stand on the shoulders of giants, academics and experts. The sort of recent, more intense spotlighting of this issue has really shown that previously grooming especially has sort of been reserved for this corner of academia that's quite dry mm. and that's to the benefit of perpetrators Words like grooming and gaslighting especially uh, have not really been in, in the zeitgeist. I think anyone who reads your book will come away with a deeper understanding of these types of terms. But if someone who hasn't read it yet, I mean, is there a message or something that you would like them to understand about grooming and how it works? Well, it thrives in silence and in secrecy. And while I can't take away from the very real horror of child sexual abuse, something that I am determined for people to understand is that so much of the psychological manipulation of predators relies on constructed myths, on us believing in their bullshit. Mm. Uh, these people are cowards. You know, they're evil, but they're also cowards. They're pathetic. They really are. 
And that is why they target people who are lesser than them or who, who they perceive to be beneath them. What they don't have is the power to be vulnerable. And for that reason, they are the weakest people on this earth. I have never met anybody so strong as survivors of child sexual abuse. The strength that it takes to simply be, the strength that I have seen in the movement, this reckoning, wherein people are reclaiming their power and sharing their stories, even if they're not sharing them using their voices, even if they're just coming up to me and giving me a hug and I have that knowing feeling, it's incredible. You don't mind when people approach you? That's a big burden, you know, knowing that other people see you as that symbol. No, incorrect. I'm sorry to stop you there. Uh, It's not a burden at all. Survivors, you are not a burden. It is not your fault. It is not your shame. The shame sits squarely at the feet of perpetrators of child sexual abuse. It is your shame. And perpetrators, if you are listening right now, I see you and I've got you figured out. Perpetrators, you are about as complicated as a paint-by-numbers picture of a circle. Some of the concern when speaking about any topic, but especially something like child sexual abuse, is that we know that some voices are centred more than others in the media, in conversations around it. How did you grapple with that, you know, about being the most prominent voice on that issue last year? Well, I, again, I've never claimed to be able to represent all voices. And one of the things that I try to speak about as much as I possibly can while, you know, occupying this space now, I try as much as I can to encourage the media and to encourage other people to share the space to talk about the issue of underrepresentation, it's a fine line to walk. If there was a survivor who had the exact same intersections as me, who is also a bisexual, autistic, white female, their experience is also going to be different to mine. It will have parallels, Mm -hmm. but it will also be different to mine because they're another person. Their life story is going to be different. They would have different interests, they would have different needs. And that's important. It's all the more reason why we need to keep encouraging survivors, even as hard as it is. And again, physically, sometimes it can be impossible to speak. And I have moments, not only as a traumatised person, but uh, as an autistic person, I sometimes go completely non-verbal. And I have moments where I physically just can't speak. And I just sit in silence. And, you know, I communicate with, you know, I write things down or I draw to self-soothe or I just sit there and I pat something soft, you know, stim, a stim. Um, And, you know, I understand that it's easier said than done, but actually we have a lot more power and that power resides in here, in in our voice, whatever that voice translates to, whatever that method of communication is. And... Whether you are a First Nations person, a person of colour, a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, a migrant, a refugee, a low-income earner, or a member of another marginalised group that inherently makes your story harder to tell, you matter and your story 
could potentially be a catalyst to create change and it is something that can bring colour to the grey. Next, a change of government and a change of Australia's laws. Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This season includes 2022 Miles Franklin winner Jennifer Down and Stella Prize winner Evelyn Araluen. You know, we are colonised through literature and our resistance to that, I think, has a capacity to be literary. We are not in a post-colonial society in Australia. The invaders are still here. They've never left. Subscribe to Book It In now on your favourite podcast player where you can hear the first episode of this new season out next week on Thursday, 3rd of November. During your time as Australian of the Year, you spoke at the National Press Club and you were asked about Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his comments regarding an allegation of a, a rape at Parliament House of a staffer. Jenny and I spoke last night and... She said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? And you replied... It shouldn't take having children to have a conscience. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. In the book you say that that comment has been misconstrued. What what did you mean by it? While I do stand by my words in that context... When I was there that day, there were pretty clear guidelines laid down by the MC before I spoke about not asking questions about the then recent allegations because they really didn't have anything to do with grooming. There's similarities, but it's really, it was really nothing to do with child sexual abuse And it says a lot about the media's inability to put their own, excuse my English, shit aside for one minute and just go, all right, this is time to talk about something else. Let's get outside our Canberra bubble and let's focus on education instead of sensation. So your foundation, the Grace Team Foundation, has been working with a whole bunch of people, including the government. Recently, the government announced a five-year plan that would bring consistency to the country's sexual assault legislation, which does cover child sexual abuse as well. Can you tell me about that and what is actually going to change in that process? That's correct. So on the 12th of November last year, 12th of November 2021, I addressed the annual meeting of Attorneys General and proposed this broad campaign, this umbrella campaign, if you will, for greater consistency between the states and territories on sexual assault legislation, because sexual assault legislation is a state-based issue. And it looks as though we don't take that issue seriously as a nation. And there's no logical reason why we should have differently worded punishments, but more importantly, why justice should look different for children in different states of Australia. You know, for example, we have two different ages of consent. It it doesn't make sense why we should have two different ages. 
So I picked three starting points, if you will, uh, and I went with the maintaining a sexual relationship offence. At the time, there were four jurisdictions that still used that language to criminalise that offence instead of the persistent sexual abuse of a child. thought, well, why don't we start there and get every state to change the wording to wording that properly reflects the actual offence that does justice to the gravity of the crime. And then I said, why don't you get together and agree on one age of consent? And then I thought, well, sexual intercourse itself is actually inconsistently defined. And how can you reform other legislation that pertains to that issue if you don't have a consistent definition in the first place? It's kind of a baseline definition. So we, I went with those three sort of starting points, and also like that's like if you if you're going to talk to to government or or um, you know bureaucrats, that's basically all they can hold in their brain at the one time. Keep it simple. Yeah, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, so, and on the uh, in August of this year, we received a letter from Mark Dreyfus, who's the current federal attorney general, and the. Current government, federal government, have announced a a review. It's an unprecedented move. They're going to work towards consistent legislation on a federal level. It's just it's very rare for that to happen because states and territories usually are quite possessive of their legislation in these areas that are governed by jurisdictions independently. So yeah, that's amazing. And the ACT have officially changed the offence name, I should say, to the persistent sexual abuse of a child. And the Queensland Attorney-General, uh, Shannon Fentiman, will be seeing the uh, implementation of that same wording. So two big wins. That means wow. that we're 75% of the way. And other work that we do with the foundation, we've funded the legal work of 50, over 50 cases and counting. How do you feel about the Albanese government's commitment to this issue and do you feel like it's a better environment than the last government? They are definitely taking this issue seriously. In a short space of time, the response from the Albanese government to this issue has been incredible. We've also got another campaign running called um, Super for Survivors. There's a coalition of us who are working to prevent perpetrators of child sexual abuse from hiding their assets in super, which would take the responsibility off the taxpayer from funding uh, survivor compensation. And it would stop uh, perpetrators from being able to appear as though they're cash poor on paper. And then when they come out of prison, after they've served these usually really, really lenient sentences because child sexual abuse in Australia is the most underpunished crime. And, you know, uh, the response from Stephen Jones, who's the, the Minister of Financial Services, he's been incredible. Um, I also believe that Mark Dravis is, is reviewing that as well and they're working towards legislation on that issue. I mean, the response has been prompt and it's just been... It's like, I'm sorry, I laugh, but it's finally, it's like we've got real people running their show. Like it's not this just um, band of amateurs. It's really hard because the thing is, seriously, it's not about right versus left. And 
I've been a swing voter all my life and nothing, nothing in life maps neatly into, into good and bad um, and, and thinking, you know, that like the Liberal Party are all bad, the Labor Party are all good. It's just not, it just doesn't work like that. But certainly on this particular issue of, of sexual assault, um, we've, we've seen some positive outcomes and the rest remains to be seen. It's early days. That was Grace Tame, 2021 Australian of the Year. Information and support for anyone affected by rape or sexual abuse issues is available in Australia at 1800 Respect. That's 1800 737 732. We've put a link to that and some other support services on the full story page. Grace's memoir, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner, is out now via Pan Macmillan. You can also read an excerpt from the book at The Guardian titled Grace Tame on Child Sexual Abuse. I Could Not Seem to Fully Release My Body from the Wreck. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria. Sound design and mixing by Tim Jenkins. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. OK, catch you tomorrow.